Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this November 2015 episode is Brick Wall Busting Strategies. We are going to start off at the Genealogy Insider blog, where Diane has several posts filled with brick wall strategies. And then in our top tips segment, Dave Frixell is back to help us identify whether or not we've hit a true brick wall. Then in our 101 best website segment, Tanya Kuntz will be here to talk about resources to help with the challenges of African-American genealogical research. And then Sunny Morton will be here to join me to share tips from the Family Tree University course that she developed on cluster and collateral research. And finally, we'll wrap things up at the publisher's desk with Allison, who has another terrific resource for us. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Genealogy Insider blog with Diane Haddad. Well, let's kick this episode off with the news from the blogosphere, and we'll do that with Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. Hey, Diane, our theme for this episode is brick wall busting strategies. And you know, you blog on so many different ideas um, about genealogy. How about giving us a little buffet of brick wall strategies from some of your most recent articles? Well, that sounds good. So well, I guess we can start with one of the more recent blog posts about the findmypast.com new release of the 1939 register of England and Wales. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of people, um, making that link back to their grandparent or their great-grandparent generation is difficult because often those the records from that time period in the 20th century are protected, so mm-hmm. they can be hard to get to. Or um, finding out where you know relatives lived during that time. If you're trying some reverse genealogy techniques, um, you might need to use record you know more recent records. So this set, um, the 1939 register, is kind of like a census. Um, It was taken as World War II was starting up in order for um, the government of Britain to be able to organize efforts to, um, you know, evacuation plans and handing out food vouchers and things like that. So this register happened in a period... um, of no census from 1921 to 1951. So for people who need to find someone in England during that time, this is a godsend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it, it really could bust open uh, a brick wall just because it's it's filling a need that just isn't met in any other record like this. Yeah. So how did they get a hold of the 1939 register? It's with the National Archives of Britain. And they um, not only put the registers on the site, but they're the way that you access the records once you find a person. It's not an FIMIPAS subscription. You pay for it separately, but then you also get um, a maps of the area of um, where that household was and relevant newspaper articles. Um, so they kind of give you a little curated collection of, of information about that family. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. 
Now, of course, uh, I love newspapers. We all do. There's so much uh, amazing material that shows up in newspapers that just doesn't show up anywhere else. And you blogged about this as well, too, didn't you? There was a specific site I was talking about. It tends to be an overlooked newspaper site called Old Fulton New York Postcards, but it's actually um, more newspapers than postcards (laughs) from all of New York State. And then the um, Tom Trzinski, the webmaster behind all this, um, it's a one-man operation, and he's branching out into other states as well. But my husband's family is from upstate New York, and it's a pretty unique last name. And I type it in and just get all these results. So um, newspapers.com, the Chronicling America, Genealogy Bank, um, all our newspapers are great ways to find brick wall busting details for your family tree. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite strategies with newspapers that really opened up a lot of articles that I think I would have missed otherwise was if I kind of bypass the name, but search on the address mm-hmm. where they lived. So often you'd find uh, they're having an estate sale, they're selling the house, the descriptions of where they lived. I mean, so many other details if we search on those things that kind of connect to our family but not always, you know, doesn't always name them precisely. I just think that's, it's kind of exciting to, to dig out all those little gems. And then uh, just recently, gosh, uh, today, in fact, you were blogging about clues that might lead us to discovering if we have American Indian ancestry. How about some uh, tips from that? Yeah, this is a very common story in U.S. families, and um, sometimes it's not true at all. Sometimes it is, or there might be a grain of truth, and family stories can throw us all off track in our research. They can present brick walls because, you know, someone might say, oh, great-grandma was Cherokee, but maybe she wasn't, and so you spend all this time researching in the five civilized tribes' records and... um, you know, might not get anywhere because that's the wrong place to be looking. But if you do have those stories in your family, there are some clues that should prompt you to start researching because there might be truth in that story. One, for example, in the U.S. Census is that recorded Indians, um, an I or I-N was an abbreviation used in the race column in order you know, to indicate that this person is of American Indian descent. If you have someone in the tribal enrollments that were taken of those five civilized tribes, that's another good clue. If you have DNA markers that indicate you have American Indian ancestry, family stories that go with historical record evidence that you have people in your family who lived in places where American Indian tribes lived, so um, like Oklahoma, for example, Um, and then an ancestor lived in Indian territory by 1900 is also a good indication that they might have been a member of a tribe that was removed to Oklahoma. Exactly. Yeah, it's amazing how many resources there really are. And and Diana just touched on a couple of those key areas throughout our research where we can run into brick walls. And she's got these three great articles that you can get all the details. That first one we talked about, the 1939 Register with Find My Past that covers England and Wales. Uh, newspapers. I love this blog post. You called it "Stop! Somebody Stop Me!" Finding New York family history in newspapers. So many results. I could have kept going all day. <laughs> That's the beauty of having this job, right? We get to use our own ancestors as the guinea pigs for uh, as we're talking about things in genealogy. So check out what she's been doing there because you know her findings definitely could cross over into helping you with yours. And of course, five clues 
that you may have American Indian ancestry. I'll have links to all three blog posts so you get all the uh, tips and tricks that Diane's been blogging about. Wonderful brick wall busting strategies. Thank you so much, Diane. You're welcome. If you feel like you've hit a brick wall in your genealogy research, it may actually just be a detour not the end of your research road. I've invited David Frixell back to the show to help us determine the difference and, if possible, navigate a new route to answers about your ancestors. Hi, David. Hello. Thanks for having me again. Oh, it's great to have you back. You know, I was just reading your new article. It's called The Long Way Around, and it appears in the December 2015 issue of Family Tree Magazine. And this article just fits perfectly with our episode theme, um, kind of focused on brick wall busting strategies. And in the article, you provide 10 ways to tell if you really are at the end of the records road or if you're just at a detour. So Let's just dive into it. What's one of the ways that you can tell when you're when you've really exhausted all of your resources? Well, you know, it's interesting because you hear talk about uh, brick walls. We talk about it all the time, and I got to thinking: How do you really know if it's a brick wall? You know, it, that yeah. probably there is some point at which you've exhausted all the options, and you should just you know give up and accept that. You know, back in the 11th century, the records run out, and you know, <laughs> but. And the truth is, a lot of things that people think are brick walls, sort of depending on our level of laziness slash determination, really aren't. So, I mean, the first one on the list is you run out of online records. Like, really, mm-hmm. people? Okay, I'm sorry. It isn't on Ancestry.com. <laughs> Family Search hasn't gotten around to putting the records online yet, but that doesn't mean you've really hit a brick wall. You know, so yeah. go on that. Um, then there's, you know, related possibility is that the records you need maybe are not yet available to the public. Um, that's particularly true like with vital records and things like that, that sometimes there's a waiting period. Or mm-hmm. if the answer you need is really in the 1950 census, you know, and that's not available yet. Um, so in that case, it, you've not really hit a brick wall. It's really more a matter, you know, of, of patience that you need to, to have in uh, all things in time. Well, exactly. And, you know, as you were talking about online records, certainly not everything's online, but kind of having your feelers out online helps to notify you when those offline records that are not yet public do become available in whatever capacity that they become available. So it's kind of a team effort, right? Exactly. To to stay on top of those things. That's a great point. And then number three, you have uh, Face, Maiden, and Other Name Mysteries. We're talking about the ladies here. Uh, you know, that can be the, you know, the real killer is you, you run into, you can't figure out the maiden name or um, either, you know, some other roadblock related. You can't find the, you know, the maiden name, but you can't find her parents. There are ways around those so often. I mentioned like church records, for example. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of those are available then online. Land records sometimes can help with those you know, sorts of problems. So again, that's a pretty common, maybe the most common, you know, quote unquote, brick wall problem, but it doesn't have to be insoluble. There, there are ways around, you just may have to be creative. And that's again, where we're always talking about, you know, sort of collateral relatives um, and uh, cluster genealogy may, you know, help you bust that brick wall. Oh, I, I love when you have a little kind of a 
a pull out tip on that um, to try looking for other relatives who live in the same place. And I'm a big believer on that because who knows what the reason is that our ancestor just seems to be in hiding, but they are part of a community, right? And a a cluster of other relatives. So we can use them hopefully to track down some items that might then mention our folks. Well, and the same kind of, you know, answer number four was, you know, the records that you need have been destroyed. And you know, that's most common in pla- places like, well, I have a lot of Southern ancestors. And so you run into the so-called burned courthouse where right. you know, they built these courthouses of wood instead of brick and, you know, boom, um, up everything goes in a fire. Well, maybe they've been destroyed. Maybe there were, you know, duplicates sent like the, to the state archives. Um, if they're church records, they might have been also sent to some sort of archdiocese or, you know, higher uh, hierarchical, uh, you know, authority. So they may not have been destroyed or their substitute records. Like, you know, of course, the uh, 1890 U.S. federal census is the most famous case destroyed in a fire um, where Ancestry has even put together a lot of census substitute things that try use city directories and things to try to get around that, you know, particular roadblock, which may or may not be a real permanent, you know, brick wall. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you have number five, which I think is really key for folks who are maybe fairly new to genealogy. And that is that the specific records that you need were never created in the first place. Uh, There's nothing worse than looking for something that doesn't exist, right? And sometimes we just feel like, oh, well, automatically there's records, but not always. And you're right. And it could be a real shock to people because, you know, right now our lives create so many records and you're always filling up paperwork. But way back when, you know, a lot of places, again, like my southern ancestors, were relatively late to the whole vital records game. Uh, If you're looking for colonial ancestors, well, they didn't start taking U.S. censuses until there was a U.S. Right. You know, if you're looking for Native American or African American ancestors, for obvious reasons, those records may be, you know, much more scanty. So it is possible that, you know, this we're getting to the territory now where, you know, maybe you have hit a real brick wall that... Um, there's simply all new records out there that can answer, you know, that mystery. Um, I give some suggestions as to, you know, ways to, again, to work around that. But, you know, this, we're, we're, you're getting tough here. If there's no record, there's no record. And you really have to then work sideways to try and find it in, in you know, some other um, way. Well, and that's a good reminder to take a few moments, extra moments, once you get over the excitement of what you're finding, particularly when you're working like on a site like Ancestry, because they do have information about each collection. And as you're working with a collection, I think taking the time to really read through what it does and it does not cover and where it came from originally. So maybe you could track down the original version of it. Um, there's a lot to learn about each and every different kind of record group out there, don't you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. And one, yeah. one type of record group that I didn't talk about, which is not really records, we're kind of cheating here, but it's what's called compiled genealogies. Yeah. And the, again, you, this is one of those things where it's imperfect. You don't want to depend as your proof on, you know, somebody wrote in some book somewhere um, that so-and-so is your ancestor. That's not very satisfactory to those of us, you know, are real genealogists here, but it may be as you get farther back in time you may have to accept that, okay, it's not quite a brick wall, but, you know, this is the best you're going to do is to accept this compiled genealogy um, and, you know, know what your source is, but think, well, okay, I, we only have, you know, so-and-so's word for it who 
or this organization or whatever. Um, and that, again, that may be the best you can do. So it's sort of a brick wall again, that you may be there near the end of the road. Yeah. And we've covered six already. There's 10 in all in the article. And I think what I love about this article is that in each case, uh, as you go through these 10 different ways, you're giving lots of really good tangible things that we could try instead of or to deal with each one of these. And, and that's the truth. I think that's kind of the bottom line is that there's, there's always another way to look at it, another way to approach it. And I guess there's always another line to work on too, right? Well, that's what keeps us busy and keeps us hoping, you know? (laughs) That's right. Well, this is awesome. Uh, Be sure to check out David's article. It's called The Long Way Around. It's in the December 2015 um, issue of the magazine. And David, I I love it that you're helping us to um, deal with our brick walls in a very realistic way, you know, and certainly with a lot of hope because you do have lots of great uh, tips and ideas here. Thanks so much for uh, coming back to the show. Thanks so much. African-American genealogical research poses some very unique challenges, and here to help us tackle those challenges with a few of the websites that are featured in our 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Family Tree list is Tania Kuntz. She's a volunteer with the National U.S. Gen Web Project and a very active blogger at her blog called Tania's Genealogy Blog. (laughs) Hi, welcome to the show, Tania. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. We've been Facebook friends a long time. I've seen you out and about and around, and I'm thrilled to have you here on the show today. I'd love to have you kind of start us off. What are some of those specific challenges that one faces when researching African-American roots? Well, I would say one of the biggest challenges is when we have ancestors who were enslaved. Um, As you know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, prior to emancipation, African-American individuals and those of African descent were primarily property of um, enslaving families. Of course, there are exceptions. We did have many individuals who were free persons of color, but by and large, most of the population were slaves. And so when you're doing research on this population, it becomes very important to try and look for records from the families that were um, enslaving our ancestors because we were considered property. So we're looking at records like tax inventories, probate records, labor contracts. The type of records we deal with prior to emancipation are typically you know, different than what we deal with post-emancipation. Yeah, it is a unique challenge because, as you said, you're looking for not only your families, but the families, the slaveholding families. And so you're kind of having to do double duty. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Because those are very different record sets Mm -hmm. as well, aren't they, for each of those populations? they very much are. And while when you first get started, you want to start following traditional genealogical approaches, right, working with yourself and going backwards, it's when we hit that time period that it then calls for a very different approach. Right. Well, let's dig into a couple of the sites that are featured on the 101 Best Websites list, um, because I think that will give us an opportunity for you to kind of point out some of these collections that are available and how we might go about using these. The first one we're looking at is the Afro-Louisiana History and Genealogy 1719 to 1820 Mm -hmm. website. Uh, What's this all about? So this is a website that 
was created by uh, Dr. Gwendolyn Hall um, in 1984. She was a history professor at Rutgers, and her particular area of expertise is Latin American and Caribbean history. Well, over the course of 15 years, she carefully went through thousands of records of slave transactions throughout the state of Louisiana. She did also use archives in France and Spain, for example, but most of the documentation she looked at were those transactions of sales of slaves in Louisiana. So now she has built this collection that has information on more than 100,000 slaves who lived in Louisiana during the time period reflected in the title of this database. So it's very interesting because of her detailed work, we now have this available to us as researchers. And if you have a family tie back to Louisiana, this database becomes a very important resource to consult because you never know what you may fine. <laughs> yeah. And when you first look at it, you know, a little bit from a from a user standpoint, the, the site looks like maybe it has been around for a yes. while. It's it's not really fancy. Right. It's but not. that doesn't really matter, does no. it, if it has what we're looking for. Right. I also want to ask you, because when I was doing some Google searching on this, it looked to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Somehow, this, the name of the same collection seemed to pop up with Ancestry. Yes. Is there duplication there? It is included within Ancestry's database set. So you can search it through the site. And I actually haven't spent a lot of time searching it directly in Ancestry. But most of the time I've used it has been directly on the site itself because it is freely available. So yeah. anyone can access the site and search it. And there are a few more search capabilities on the direct website than if you were to search through Ancestry. Ah, that was mm-hmm. what I was wondering, because mm-hmm. that's often the case. When yes. You see that <laughs> and I noticed that they have here, not only search the databases link, but they have the how to search. Yes. Do you have any tips for the ways to kind of get the best out of this website? My tip would be to read the how to search. And I, that comes from my professional background in information science and information seeking. One of the things we tell our users when we're trying to help them learn how to search a database is if you take the few minutes that it, it It requires to understand how the database is put together. It's going to return volumes when it comes time for you to search. Because if you understand how the information goes in, you better understand how to get it out. So the How to Search page has quite a bit of information on how they put the database together, what fields are available for searching. This database does support truncation. So for example, you can use the asterisk symbol after a few letters and get variations. So if you type in MCCO with asterisk, you'll get McCoy, you'll get McCormick, you'll get variations of any characters after the placement of the asterisk. So that's just one tip is that you can use advanced searching features and that page gives you those details. I cannot agree with you more. And, and you know, we all get excited, right? Because we hear about a new website or a mm-hmm. collection and you want to dig right in. Mm-hmm. But I think you're absolutely right. And particularly with a site like this, yes. that reading this and getting familiar with it. And they really, really give you some great examples. Yes. You can see it in action. Yes, so they do. Yeah. And it looked to me like also that some of these search features might be a little bit different than what we might be used to doing yes. in Ancestry. Right. So you don't want to be doing something that's not going to pay off. Well, let's talk about uh, the second website that we have here on the list. It's yeah. Digital Library on American Slavery. And this one looks like it comes from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, this is one that's so close to my heart. I'm from North Carolina. My family's from North Carolina, and I grew up in Greensboro. <laughs> so <laughs> You are 
connected, yes. So the Digital Library in American Slavery, as you said, it, it is produced by the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and it's a collection of five databases that give you information about slaves in the state. There is also some information about slaves across the other slaveholding states, but the focus is primarily in North Carolina. The major component of the site is what is known as the Race and Slavery Petitions. These are records of um, legislative and county court petitions that they extracted more than 80,000 slave names, 8,000 names of free people of color, and 62,000 names of white individuals in the county as they presented themselves to court for various issues around the slaves. This is the actual portion of the site where I have recently found information about my family. So that's the bulk of the website. There's also a database of runaway slave advertisements. There is a connection to the transatlantic slave trade database, some information on various counties around the state on slave deeds, and some information on insurance registries for slave owners who had policies protecting themselves against the loss, damage, or death of their slaves. Wow. We're talking about such unique records. Yes. This is not something that everybody comes across every day. So this collection of the Race and Slavery Petitions mm-hmm. Project, is this something that the university did as a project or how yes. did this come so about? Yes, so the university took this on. They had some national grant funding, but they took a microfilm collection and indexed it and put the index online. So you're able to refer to the index to get petition specific petition numbers, and then there are ways to then request the full text of that petition. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, Tania, these are such unique collections, and here they are. They, they look like they're geared to North Carolina. When we're approaching African-American research, are we likely to find similar types of collections unique to each state. How consistent are are these kinds of records? I would say they're broadly inconsistent. (laughs) It depends on each state, but usually what I recommend is that people start with the state library or state archives within the state that they're looking for, because they can give you very useful clues and tips for what collections may exist for their state that are unique to their state. And it it really is a location-by-location type of endeavor. Yeah, that's a great point. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to learn more about these, check out the show notes for this episode because we have the links to the Afro-Louisiana History and Genealogy website as well as the Digital Library and American Slavery website. And we have a link to Tania's genealogy blog. (laughs) Uh, Tell us the URL so we can all find you there. Oh, yes. It's Tania, T-A-N-E-Y-A hyphen Kalonji, K-A-L-O-N-J-I dot com slash genblog, G-E-N-B-L-O-G. Thank you so much for taking the time to introduce us to these sites. Very exciting. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. In this Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I've invited Sunny Morton. She's a contributing editor at Family Tree Magazine to talk about one of the classes that she developed, which really helps bust brick walls. Hi, Sunny. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, You know, one of the terrific strategies that we turn to as genealogists is cluster research. And I know that you developed a class on that. Why don't you start us off by just telling us uh, what the class is about, kind of what do you cover when we're talking cluster research? Sure, no problem. So I talk about two related kind of overlapping topics, and that's collateral and cluster research. And to put a little finer point on it, collateral research is when we start looking at not just our direct line ancestors, like great-grandpa, great-great-grandpa, but we also look at 
not quite indirect relatives, I guess you could call them. <laughs> so you look at these, they call them collateral kin. You can look at the siblings of your great-grandparents or distant cousins or other people on the family tree that aren't straight up the pole. So that's collateral research. Cluster research is kind of an overlapping topic, but it looks at those who may or may not share your blood ties, but they um, they're part of your ancestors' lives. You can tell. They lived near each other. Maybe they migrated together. Their names keep showing up together in documents or on censuses. These might be neighbors. These could be in-laws. Sometimes they do end up being relatives, and that's why I call these two groups overlapping. Um, but you know, why, why do we care about them? That's really what this class is all about. And how can we use what we learn about them to further our research on our direct line ancestors, the ones that we care about most? Exactly. I, I think particularly for uh, somebody who's new to genealogy, it just seems so counterintuitive to go spend precious time. We None of us feel like we have enough time to, to work on our family history research, to, to spend that time working on people who aren't the actual targets, you know, the, the people in our direct line. And yet it is such a powerful strategy. So give everybody your elevator speech. Why should they be doing this? Well, first of all, the information you're looking for on your direct line ancestors just may not be out there anywhere. Let's face it, maybe the record that we want was never created, or it didn't survive, or no matter how how hard we look, we're not going to find it because it's buried so deep in an archive someplace. So I think the, the first reason that we do cluster and collateral research is to attack our research problems with our own ancestors. We want to extend the tree. We want to explain a mystery, or maybe an apparent contradiction that we're seeing in uh, different records. Maybe we want to identify how someone fits into the family. Maybe we want to separate people of the same name. We want to find the family line that just sort of disappears in Pennsylvania somewhere, mm -hmm. and we don't know where they went or where they came from. And specifically, we use this, this is great to use cluster and collateral approaches before 1850 in the U.S. when our censuses are not so, um, they're not, they're not, just not as packed with as much information. And when we're yeah. researching immigrant families and we're trying to find that overseas connection. So really hard-hitting research problems. I just described several of them, but that is a primary reason to look at all of these other people that were in our ancestors' lives. But, you know, I think it goes past that, Lisa. I I think that we can better appreciate their lives and we can fill out their biography in a much more interesting and meaningful way when we learn the clues and the uh, that come from the relatives' documents or the friends' documents, and we get a much bigger picture of what their lives were like. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I know for me in my own research, uh, currently I've been doing some cluster research around my great grandparents who immigrated from Germany. And, you know, my great grandfather's records are just so <laughs> completely absent of, of the kinds of information that I need, like his parents' names and that kind of thing. Um, and, and also the, the village of origin. And the cluster research has really been invaluable to look at the other people because people didn't tend to live in a vacuum. They they moved together. They went to places where other people were that they knew. And so it's really helped me 
um, get some solid clues and leads to go back to him. So give us one of your examples. What's uh, an example of how you really dig in with this type of research and make headway? Okay, great. So I would like to focus a little bit on census records for making these what we call this kinship determination. Because bottom line, every ancestral link we make is either between a parent and a child or a spouse and a spouse. And those, so those are the two sort of core links we want to make. And as we make them, we might make them, make several of them uh, through one set of links, but we can use census records to help us create um, and give evidence to many of those links. So the, the U.S. federal census didn't begin requesting the relationship of each person to the head of household until 1880. But of course, starting in 1880, this is like kind of sort of our, oh, yay. <laughs> Finally, we can see some evidence on this. Of course, occasionally, that can be a little misleading. It's easy to assume, for example, if we have a child in a household and it says son, well, it's the son of the male head of household because it's it's the relationship to him. But is it mm-hmm. his, is it also his wife's child? It might be his child from another marriage. So you we want to keep in mind things like that because that's that's the way the relationship is going to um, be described. But I use census records in a few different ways. So here's a couple of examples. I look at age differences between each child and the current wife. <laughs> I look mm-hmm. for I look for significant age gaps between children that might tell me that maybe a child was lost or there was um, another marriage that happened during that time. And then I also, um, in the 1900 census, um, you can see how many years somebody has been in a current marriage and how many children the woman has born. So you can use these clues to put together with clues that you find in other censuses, maybe prior censuses, to see if, oh, has this marriage been intact for this long? And do all of these children belong to both of them? And then sometimes in the marital status column, you'll see M1 for first marriage and M2 for Mm -hmm. second marriage. So, and then, you know, you can go back a little further. The 1850 census was actually the first to list every free person by name in the household. And even though they don't give up the relationships to the head of household, there were some very interesting instructions we ought to know to the enumerators. So... It does say that the names, and this is, of course, assuming they followed the instructions, which they didn't always, <laughs> but it does say in the 1850 census enumerator instructions that the names are to be written with the father and the beginning with the father and the mother, or if either or both be dead, begin with some other ostensible head of the family to be followed as far as practicable with the name of the oldest child residing at home, then the next oldest, and so on to the youngest, then the other inmates, lodgers and boarders, laborers, domestics, and servants. So even back as far as 1850, we can see that the order they were writing in was supposed to give up that family information to say yeah. to say how they were related. Again, these are these are going to be just clues and guides for us because we don't know for sure that every enumerator followed those instructions. But as you can see, once you really start scrutinizing these census records, we can learn a lot of the kinship information we need to make these identifications for sure to um, connect these people to our families and, and further this sort of collateral research with um, extend the family lines sideways. We see more siblings there. And then maybe it's those siblings whose birth records or later their um, obituaries will point us back to that overseas hometown that, that both of their parents shared. 
that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, see, that's a compelling example of why we would want to use cluster and collateral research. And if uh, that has compelled you to invest some time in this type of research, I think you're going to find it's going to really help you uh, break out those brick walls. Uh, the class that Sunny developed is called Cluster and Collateral Research 101. And Elisa uh, also teaches it on Family Tree University. We'll have a link in the show notes. So you can go check that out and uh, participate in one of the upcoming sessions because it is such a powerful strategy. And it's one that is going to make such a difference in busting through those brick walls. Sunny, thank you so much for making the case and giving us some really tangible examples as to why we should uh, invest our time in this type of research. Thank you. You're welcome. wrapping up this episode devoted to brick wall busting. And let's check in with the publisher at the publisher's desk, Allison Dolan, to get some of her brick wall strategies and ideas. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Happy brick you know, wall gosh. busting. Yeah, it, well, it's been a full episode. We've um, covered a lot of ground. Diane had some great articles from the blog. And we've talked to folks about the classes and different uh, African American strategies. And uh, I'd be really interested in your take. I know you hear a lot of brick wall stories through your <laughs> job over the years at Family Train Magazine. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you got a whole book devoted to these stories, right? That's absolutely correct. Um, it's called 101 Brick Wall Busters. And it's available as an ebook from shopfamilytree.com. And basically, exactly what you said. Readers had been coming to us with their brick wall problems for years. And so we said, why not take all of the solutions to those problems and put them together into a book? Because I'm positive that those readers who submitted the questions are not the only ones facing those problems. Oh, exactly. It's kind of comforting when you when you read a book like that to hear, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one, because sometimes it can feel that way. And I, you know, I was looking through the list of all the different kinds of stories that you have in the book, and something that applies to everybody are names and the challenges that names propose to us. What are some of the, the things that you've heard from your readers? Well, names are a recurring question for people, I think, because um, despite the fact that names are there to help us distinguish people from each other, um, somehow people's names seem to just give us more problems than answers at times. Um, so, you know, one thing that, um, we cover in this book has to do with surname origins. So one of our readers was confounded by, you know, why is Smith the most common name? You know, if there are occupations or where names were often derived from, you would think that everyone would be named Farmer. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, Brown is a very common surname and you might see Black. You never see any yellows or oranges, though. So why is that? (laughs) Which I thought that's a really good question. Um, And basically what it boils down to is the fact that surnames were really developed to distinguish people, one person from another. And so if everyone's a farmer, using farmer wouldn't be a way to distinguish. So that's why you might see something like Smith being more common, because there might be only one blacksmith in a particular village. So that was more common. Oh, that makes total sense. Because while certainly every village might have one, they were really just 
dealing with the local people, right? Exactly. And in the book, it points out that actually in pre-colonial Britain, the name farmer often designated a noble family, a a landowner. So the farmer didn't refer to those commonplace folks. um, And that's, you know, why it wouldn't have been as common either. And of course, there's the surname, but then there's the first names. You get into these family lines, and all of a sudden, everybody's named John and Mary. Uh, What are some of the the strategies you have in the book regarding the first names? Yeah, well, so I think, as I alluded to before, keeping track of people with the same name is a challenge because people did tend to follow naming patterns where you use the same names over and over. And then, of course, the bigger the population got, the higher the probability that there were more people with those names who were potentially not related to you. So, you know, in certain records, it's obviously not necessarily possible to know if one person with a name is the same as your ancestor. Um, So one tip that we give is creating a chronology or a timeline so that you can really put events down and see at a glance whether some record that you're looking for makes sense in the context of one person where it might, if it doesn't fit, then you're probably not looking at the right ancestor. Mm, That makes sense. When something kind of looks very, very common, like the name, it's the circumstances around that person that's the uniqueness and getting those associations really clear in our mind. I love timelines. I love just writing the narrative. You know, you start to tell the story and you go, oh, wait a second, that doesn't gel. <laughs> Sometimes just saying it out loud and, and writing it on paper is really the key to exposing it for being inaccurate, don't you think? I absolutely do think. And talking through those problems out loud sometimes really brings the mistakes to light. For example, you it might be, say you've got a Harry and a Mary, as it's talking about in the book. It's not too far-fetched to think you could have multiple couples in the same area named Harry and Mary, but they're not all going to have the same children, and they're not all going to own the same land. So by put, making that holistic view on a timeline or some other research plan, I think is where those potential pitfalls come to light. That's Terrific. You know, there's so many different topics I know that you cover in the book. You've got um, pinpointing places and genetic genealogy, finding women, which can be a real brick wall. Did you guys all get together and kind of where do the answers to these questions come from? And uh, how are they kind of organized in the book? Well, we organize them in the book sort of around three different three themes, really strategies, records, and ethnic heritage, because um, ethnic heritage tends to have some special sources in terms of, you know, being unique from based on um, what your ethnic background is, so that we could adequately call out those specific sources, we wanted to give them their own special section in the book. You know, beyond that, I really, this was all just taken from actual readers inquiries. And we um, have had a column in the magazine called Now What, where we have had various experts um, from the genealogical community contribute answers to questions based on their own expertise. And so we went to those experts, and many of these were pulled from the magazine, um, as well as some additional ones that got expanded upon for this book. 
Wow. It, it's terrific. It's called 101 Brick Wall Busters, Solutions to Overcome Your Genealogical Challenges. And if you need some inspiration, you need some fresh ideas, you just want to see kind of the challenges you're facing in writing and, and some of the answers, you know, kind of brainstormed in the book, this is a really quick and easy resource to use. It's an ebook. PDF makes it really searchable and easy to uh, download immediately when you head to shopfamilytree.com. So we'll have a link directly to the ebook in the show notes. Hey, thanks so much. A great way to finish off a whole episode dedicated to brick walls. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. And good luck to all our listeners with those brick walls. Thanks so much for joining me for this November 2015 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. Now be sure and check out familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode. Those will include everything that we've talked about, all the brick wall strategies that we've covered today, including that cluster and genealogy research 101 course that's at Family Tree University. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and that's also available for free through iTunes. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.